I could like probably draw a straight line from why I wrote an adventure novel to reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Welcome to Once Upon a Line, the podcast about beautiful words and the lasting impact they have on us. I'm Rosie Fernandez. Today, we're going under the sea, 20,000 leagues to be exact. My guest is writer Rob Shapiro. Would you like to read to us the line that shook you in your boots? <laughs> the line that, that stood out to you in all the literature you've read? Sure. If there were no thunder, men would have little fear of lightning. It's from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. I haven't read the novel in many years. I read it a lot as a kid. I read like the different volumes and different versions of it. But it's just always a line that stuck with me. Uh, the first version I ever read of this book was a, like a version specifically for middle grade. So I, I was quite young at the time, maybe even under 10 years old. And I didn't know there was any other version to it. I thought this was just the book. And I loved it so much. And I remember even then they had this line in it. You know, years later when I read the actual version of it and the line, it stuck out to me again as soon as I read it. And what do you think it is about that line that stuck out to you? Well, I think for starters, it's really well written. I mean, it's interesting. It has something to say. I think what I love about it, though, is it, it actually gives you a glimpse into the characters of the story. So there's, I would say, like three main characters, Captain Nemo, uh, Professor Aranax, if I'm remembering correctly, and Ned Land are the three characters. And it, it really does say something about this kind of journey they go on about, you know, they're, they're adventuring to the unknown. Um, these are parts of the world like underwater that no one has even, you know, thought would exist. And it kind of just speaks to the fear they would feel. But at the same time, like, understand that, like, the fear isn't real. So it was something that I always carried with me when I'm creating characters. And I found it especially interesting when I was writing YA characters. So, you know, characters for young adults around maybe ages like 13 to 18. And understanding like what drives them like how fear is a motivator how fear can hold them back how they have to overcome it and i just thought it was just such like a brilliant line and you said uh, the fear isn't real what, what do you mean by that well so i think what jules verne was saying and you know i don't know the guy but i feel comfortable speaking for him <laughs> but you know, like, really, like, you know, Captain Nemo is this guy. He's trying to get revenge on his oppressors. He's doing it by building this submarine, which is meant to look like this huge sea creature. Really, it's just a submarine. So, you know, when the word spread that there's this monster in the Pacific Ocean, I think it is, that's, you know, attacking all these ships, people are scared. And he recognized that if it would have just been a submarine or another ship, it would have been very, you know, run of the mill. So he had to create something that would strike fear. And that, that to me is the lightning part of it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you see another ship, you know, maybe you'll just, you know, you'll pass in the ocean, fine, but that ship could still pose a similar danger, right? So it's about manufacturing that lightning. Reminds me kind of of that old expression. And I don't know if it was like, I feel like, it might be attributed to Hitchcock, but I feel like it, things just get kind of assigned to him and who knows if he actually said it, but it's always about, you know, the thought of something being in your closet is scarier than an actual monster. And that's true, right? Like your closet, that's a little ajar and there's like a little bit of light. It's so easy to imagine something scary there as opposed to, you know, something actually being in your closet that's real. 
-hmm. whatever our mind conjures is typically scarier than what's actually out there, knowing that the world out there is quite scary right now. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. True enough. I saw this meme where you see this guy, he's kind of, you know, muscle bound type and uh, he's walking really determinedly. And it says me when I'm going to bed, not letting the ghost scare me, you know, and you can just see that he's resisting that urge to just sprint to the bed right? <laughs> in case in the dark. Right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Like, I think when you write adventure stories or YA, it's really interesting because, you know, you have to send these characters off. And I'm talking more like fantasy YA as opposed to like, you know, just your, your dramatic YA. But you're sending characters off on these like crazy adventures, these extraordinary situations are based on extraordinary circumstances. And like at some point, though, they have to kind of move past the fear of being in this new world, like Wizard of Oz, the how... Like, at some point, Dorothy has to start skipping along the yellow brick road. She can't just always be like, wow, this is really scary. I'm in a weird world, right? Like, at some point, they have to move on past it. Mm -hmm. Speaking of fears, what uh, what is fearful to you? Um, that's a really good question. It's not necessarily something I think about often. I think, you know, as a relatively new parent, I have all the same fears. I mean, you know, when everything started happening with COVID-19, you know, you start to worry about your kid and if they're safe and, you know, if um, not being in daycare or school is going to like ne negatively affect them. So I think a lot of my fears are wrapped up in the vulnerability that comes with being a parent. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I should rephrase. What is an irrational fear? Oh, irrational fear. So I can share one with you because my just one of my irrational fears was just brought to the head like on a week sure. ago. So I don't know why I've always been afraid of sharks. There's a, a movie on Netflix called um, I don't know the Meg, the Meg the Megalodon, and of course it's completely ridiculous. But uh, my family was watching it and I had to be out of the room because I thought I just can't have another irrational fear in my mind at this point or another fear in general yeah. in my mind. It's it's irrational ones anymore. It's funny, you know, when I was <laughs> in high school, I worked at a video store, which was like you know the coolest part-time job in the '90s, and there was a customer who was so scared of sharks. She would come in and ask if we would go turn around all the, the covers for the VHS and DVDs that had sharks. And so jaws and see. So I would, she would wait outside for like 10, 15 minutes. I'd go aisle by aisle and turn around all the covers that featured a shark. Wow. That was really kind of you guys. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. she was a regular customer. You guys were friends with her or something. Like a couple times a month, but you know, you also, it's, it's a part-time job. You got to kill five, five hours. <laughs> hours right? True. True. Yeah. Okay. So, so what is one of your irrational fears? Um, I've, I only have one. I've never been scared of sharks. I've never been scared of heights. I've never had the Indiana Jones fear of snakes or anything, but I've always had a fear of something happening to eyes or something happening to my eyes. Mm. Um, I can't watch anything where eyes are harmed. Um, whether it's movie, TV show, if I get even like a speck of dust in my eye, I'm like pretty much done for the afternoon. Wow. Um, that's probably the most irrational fear. I mean, it's like, it's not even like, you know, getting your eye cut or something really that severe. It's just like anything to do with eyes. I've always had like a thing with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, eyes are very sensitive. I mean, it's not completely irrational, <laughs> but yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> it's a little extreme. It's a little extreme. And kill you. Um, but no, you know. but you know what? But they rarely do. I even did an interview once with a woman in Florida who was in in water 
I think it was only like waist deep and a shark came and bit her leg so severely that it affected her life for the rest of her life. Like, I don't think she could walk regularly. And she was part of this group, I guess all the survivors of uh, shark attacks um, become friends because it's so rare that it happens and it's so traumatic when it happens and they all become defenders of the shark. If I should say all of them, but they, but they become like, she was like radical, you know, protect the sharks. And, and they're like, it's just an animal. It wasn't trying to hurt me. It was, you know, I was, you know, there. And, um, and so it's, it's completely like you would assume they would be scared to death of sharks and never go in the water again, but they become shark activists. Yeah, that's really funny. I would love if a shark went undercover with like a fake mustache into the group and like, tried to like <laughs> finish the job with all these people defending shark. so i guess the shark and we're talking about the underwater fears of the book that you've chosen Mm -hmm. you said that you read this when you were young can you tell me a little bit about uh, young rob as a reader how did you become a reader oh man i was always a huge reader i mean from a really young age like I i was kind of a weird kid in this way i was like obsessed with movies i loved television i loved i used to read like leonard malton and roger ebert books front to back um as soon as they came out they used to have those movie criticism books i read every volume of um calvin and Hobbes, and the first taste of adult reading i ever had and i don't even know where i got it but i read a time to kill by john grisham firm by john grisham and then i read the book i don't remember who wrote it uh william dell maybe who wrote primal fear i I read a lot of like airport thrillers for some reason (laughs) yeah Uh, Probably because they were just, maybe they were just around my house. I don't even know. No, I, I read them too at that age. I don't know. Maybe they were just in at that time. <laughs> yeah, I like presumed innocent. and I just loved them. And I was just always a big reader. I read comic books, collect a huge amount of comic books from a really young age. Still, still love reading them. I think how it started was really, it was, it was one of those things where it was like, if you want a book, you know, my, my parents would be, they would buy me a book. It was no questions asked as opposed to like a video game or, you know, a toy or something. So I think it just got to a point where like, okay, I'll just, you know, keep asking for these because, you know, I like getting stuff. And then after a while, I guess the joke was on me because I just loved them. This was part of like this middle grade series. It was Phantom of the Opera, uh, Frankenstein. Dracula and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It was like a set that I was given. And 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was the one I was like, you know, I could like probably draw a straight line from why I wrote an adventure novel to reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Wow. Yes. Um, I was going to ask you, my next question was, how did this affect how you write as an adult? <laughs> yeah. You've already thought of this, clearly. <laughs> Yeah, it was really about this like serialized adventures I love so much, but there was always this backbone or this like this thread of this larger mission for Captain Nemo. And what I loved about it at the time too is he eventually accomplishes it. And it, you know, I'm for any like Vern heads out there, I'm really sorry if I'm getting any of this information wrong, but from what I remember is that he accomplishes it and realizes that he's actually the villain and he goes over the edge and that's when he starts to like destroy the Nautilus and the protagonist like uh, the professor and Ned Land is when they make their escape right but that is after they go on all these wonderful adventures and like to all these like new worlds that is just kind of under the surface world and I mean which I think was kind of Jules Verne's whole thing right <laughs> like so much of what he wrote was these like magical parts of the earth that are with like tucked inside the earth or in the ocean and 
I don't know, just kind of like fired up my imagination. It's something I always remembered. So since you first read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, um, have you reread it? Um, what is your relationship to, to the book since then? So I reread it in, I want to say high school. I haven't reread it since, but when I got an Audible account, it was one of the first stories or one of the first books I downloaded and I listened to it from time to time. Um, it, it's kind of become background noise, which I, I sometimes do with audiobooks when I'm working. So it, it is kind of this story that I put on in the background that gives me comfort. It's I don't know. It, it, it probably speaks to having read it at such a young age and being so in love with it. I thought many times about going back and just reading it, buying a really nice copy of it. And then, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm always worried about doing that. I watched a bunch of movies recently that I loved as a kid, and some of them were kind of meh. Um, and I start to wonder, like, is the memory of things just better? I've always been reticent about going back and rereading 20,000 Things Under Sea, but the, the urge has always been there as well. Yeah, that's a very elegant way of describing it. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, The Book of Sam and what what is that? Because it is an adventure book. Yeah, it's a fantasy adventure. Um, so the story is this young bully teenager named Sam Sullinger. Um, he, he learns that his best and only friend and also the girl he has a crush on, Harper, is uh, leaving to go on academic exchange to Paris. And he decides to kind of confess his love before she leaves. But in doing so, he opens up a portal to hell. So, yeah, he decides to go after her. So he journeys to hell in search of his best friend. And along the way, he befriends this other young woman named Hollinshead and this little demon named Thorlton. And he convinces himself he needs to find this legendary demon named Stolas who can help him. You know, these are kind of the stories that Sam read as a young child. He was introduced to it by his adventurer uncle. But then as he does it, he kind of realizes that this world isn't what he thought it was. And a lot of it was propaganda and, you know, it was kind of truth uh, twisted into history. And he has to kind of like find the you know, his own courage and his own confidence to go and find Harper and, and make his way back home. So how does a proposal or an admission of love uh, send you to hell? Are you saying love is hell? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't know if that is, you know, I feel like young audiences should learn that on their own eventually. <laughs> not, not through a fantasy novel, but no, it, it's so his uncle is... Um, kind of this artifacts dealer and he has you know the this hobby shop which sam works in and him and harper um on their last night together they kind of go into the bri private collection which has always been you know they've always viewed as contraband and they've always been forbidden from going and they open up a music box which plays a song which summons this demon and he convinces sam to you know recite this um poem in and it opens the portal and then it takes harper and then sam has to uh has to go after her. All right, well, thank you so much, Rob. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, you too. Rob Shapiro writes for television and film. His debut novel, The Book of Sam, is published by Dundurn Press. If you'd like to win a copy of his YA book, send us an email at onceuponalinepodcast at gmail.com with the subject, Under the Sea. I'm Rosie Fernandez. Until next time, happy reading.